So uh, two weeks ago, I, I made a really uh, deep, important confession to everybody. And I asked if, if y'all would keep it here. And everybody's done a pretty good job with that. And that confession was that I secretly like chick flicks. <laughs> and uh, there's, you know, don't get me wrong. I like good action movie. I like some, some blowing up buildings and some transforming cars or you know that I love that stuff you know I grew up just a war movie fanatic uh, playing war in the woods with my friends and stuff but there's a secret part of me that actually really enjoys a love story and I've thought about that as I've gotten older it's even grown even more is because I believe the, the gospel the bible's central message is a love story it's about God's passionate love to bring himself his people back to himself and that and actually in the, in the last book of the bible revelation describes it as a wedding when jesus comes to take his bridegroom and there will be this ultimate celebration and so uh so it's kind of actually fitting there's this little love story in the uh right in the middle of the old testament um right during the time of what we call the judges uh israel uh, God has delivered his people from Israel out of the hands of the Egyptians. They've wandered in the desert for 40 years with Moses. Um, and they, you know, awesomely with Joshua conquer the land. And then, then it's just kind of chaos. There's no leaders. It's kind of anarchy. And it's like there's this constant cycle of trouble and God having to get his people out of trouble. And like right during that time, you have this amazing little love story. And uh, so just to catch you guys up, what's happening in the story is, um, the story starts with there's famine in the land of Israel. And uh, you, we, we hear about this guy, Elimelech. And Elimelech, because of the famine, takes his wife Naomi and his two sons, and they leave uh, Israel and go to the land of Moab. And we've talked about this uh, that Moab was not a place that Israelites should have been going to. wasn't a place uh, th- that was it recommended that you go. Let's just put it that way. But they went because of famine. And while there, Elimelech and his two sons, who have already ta- who took Moabite wives at by this point, all three of them die, leaving Naomi with her two daughter-in-laws, and so and being left as a widow. In an ancient world, by itself was bad enough, but here they are in a foreign country as three widows, which basically meant they were destitute. They had nobody to speak for them, nobody to provide for them, no, nothing. There was no welfare, no food stamps, nothing that was going to help them out. And so Naomi decides to, to convince her daughter-in-laws to go home to their families, and she decided she was going to go back to Israel and maybe survive somehow through family or something and it's a pretty bleak place and uh, Orpha one of her daughter-in-laws takes her advice and goes home to her family but we see Ruth her other daughter-in-law amazingly decides no I'm with you and I'm with your God in the face of utter um, a bleak future a hopeless future she chooses the God of Israel. And so the, they return back to Israel. 
And she, they, in order to survive, they, are, they start to utilize this, this law that exists with the Israelites, which was called the gleaning laws, which told farmers, you know, not to farm the entire field, but to leave an edge so that the poor, the widow, and the foreigner could have something to eat. And so Ruth, being younger, and probably I don't, Naomi must not have been able, but Ruth goes out to glean, and she happens upon the field of, of, a, of a man named Boaz, who, uh, who, whose eye gets caught by Ruth. We see that he notices this girl, and he starts to... Uh, delight in her and starts to show her un- an extraordinary kindness. And, and not only does he uh, let her glean with her people, he, he gives her extra and then invites her to dinner and then be, all this stuff happens. Okay, and so, and, and so up to that, that's where we are at the story. That, that's happened and now the, the harvest has been going on and Ruth has been shown this amazing kindness and stuff. And so in those first two chapters we saw that Ruth, I mean, Ruth and Naomi were kind of two people that responded to tragedy and suffering in, in two different ways. One became bitter. The other became better and trusted God. We, we talk about how having a good theology of suffering is super important. That, we, or, you know, can you trust God's goodness even when things are hard? And then the next week we saw that God, like Boaz, delights in us he loves and delights in bringing us ultimate joy and that's what the gospel is about and how and what does it look like to rest in his delight for us and so uh that's where we end up and we're so now starting in chapter three as the story goes on <clears throat> and uh and then we'll jump in okay um so uh, Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is, not, is Boaz not our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put your, clo- on, put your cloak and put on your cloak, excuse me, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant." For you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For my fellow townsmen know you are a worthy woman. 
And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning I will redeem you. Good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, uh, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, as we always say, Lord, nobody's here to hear Russell's thoughts or opinions, but they've come to hear from you, Lord, so speak uh, through your words, speak through this broken vessel this morning. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this story takes kind of a weird twist. And I love that. I love movies and stories that have like a twist that you weren't expecting. And this is one. Uh, so I think of like, y'all remember the, the, old movie, the old show Twilight Zone? I, I think you can go to YouTube and like watch them through whatever. But there was one called, uh, I think it was called... Um, uh, what was the name of it? Um, uh, Eye of the Beholder, I think the name of it was. And you, you're, the scene is, is this lady, and she has obviously gone through some type of surgery, and her whole head is wrapped up in gauze and, and wrappings or whatever. And, and, and she's discussing with uh, doctors and nurses that you never quite see. They're kind of like, you know, you just never see their faces or anything. And, and they're just talking about how they're really hopeful that the surgery has, has uh, repaired her hideous condition. Because she, she, if she doesn't fix her hideous appearance, they're going to have to send her to the island or wherever uh, to be with people that, because they can't be in the city with the people, uh, with the normal people or whatever. And so there's, this moment, there's these anxious moments or whatever, and they're talking about this. And so they finally decide, okay, we're going to remove this, you know, the, the bandages and see the results of this surgery. And they were talking about how it may not turn out, you know, because this is a really, you know, your bone structure and your skin things or whatever or it may not work or whatever. And they take off her wrappings, and she's beautiful. You know, this beautiful blonde, you know, very, very much uh, 1950s actress blonde, you know, and you know, all makeup on and everything, of course. And, you know, and, and their, the reaction of the nurses and the doctors, she notices. She's like, what happened? Did it not work? And she goes and she looks in the mirror and she sees herself and it's like, no! And then all of a sudden, she gets grabbed and you notice the faces of the doctors and the nurses and they have these hideous faces with like gnarly noses and weird, you know, whatever. And she's like, no! And she gets drug out of the room, you know? And it's like this twist of like, oh, what is beauty, right? <laughs> And so here in this story here, you have kind of a twist. Um, it, it takes sort of a, a, a weird turn in the story. You, uh, you have Ruth, and, and she's been shown this kindness, and they're at the barley harvest or whatever. And, you, you know, the next step might be like Boaz shows up, you know, 
this man of valor, as he's described. And he rides up on his white horse, and he, like, sweeps her off her feet, and they off into the sunset they ride, right? That's, that's kind of what you might expect at this point in the story. That's kind of the trajectory. And then all of a sudden, uh, it, it says in the end of chapter um, uh, 2 that um, she kept... And she kept close to these ladies with Boaz or whatever in these fields and was gleaning. And now the, the harvest, now, and then in chapter 3, we see that the harvest is over. And so if you do the math, I mean, a, a, at least a good seven weeks has passed. Okay? So nothing has happened. And all of a sudden, uh, Naomi decides to try to do something to act. And so you get this weird twist in this story. And so, but let me just back out and say, in this chapter here, chapter 3, we see Ruth do something remarkable. And, and Naomi as well. We see in her the power of love. Okay? And in this, we're going to see some really important truths about our relationship with God. Okay? And so I kind of want to break down what happens here. So in, in, in Ruth chapter 3, Matt Michael uh, we give, we're given a picture of genuine, true, life-transforming love. Okay, but it comes in a kind of a weird package, a twist here, okay? So, but, so the first thing I want to say, though, about this love is that, first of all, love requires risk. Love requires risk. So here we are at um, this seven weeks or longer has gone on, and... Naomi is probably thinking, this dude's never going to do anything. He's never going to propose. He's not going to. And, and there's, there's reasons for that. Um, there's reasons for that is uh, not because Boaz was a nerd or uh, was, you know, too afraid or was too shy, which is sometimes why guys don't, you know, end up asking a girl out, right? I mean, there was a, a plenty of ladies that, I, that probably – could have ended up with, but I was just too, too afraid to, to talk to him, too afraid to ask him. And so uh, Naomi, but there was other factors, and we'll get into that. But so Naomi decides she's going to come up with a plan. She's going to come up with a plan to uh, help her daughter-in-law, which in, in trade might help her, uh, try to get connected to this guy who has obviously shown them, her some, you know, affection. You know, he is obviously... Uh, he, there's, he's, she's hot, and she's got some serious godliest character. We talked about that last week. And so Boaz is, is liking her, but she's got she's going to try to move things along here. And so she asked Ruth to go to this threshing floor. The threshing floor was a place at the end of the harvest. All the stuff that was cut down or whatever, would be, they would beat, beat it out so that the grain would separate from the stalks and so on, and they could separate the two. And then you could go to, to use that grain, store it, or sell it, or whatever. And so this is kind of the end of the harvest. And so that, he's down at this threshing floor. And so she wants him, to Ruth, to go down. And to, to really, she wants her to go take an enormous risk. And, and to really see that, you have to, um, you have to be helpful to know Hebrew. And we don't... Not, I barely know it. I had to study it or whatever. Um, but uh, if, if you knew the Hebrew, and as you read this, you would be like, 
And you'd be like, what's going on here? Okay, so there's three words that come up here. He talks about um, her going down and, and um, first of all, going at night, uh, uh, going and uncovering his feet. Uh, and, and there's all this wording and the scenario that is painted has like some serious sexual overtones. Okay, these, all these words that the author of Ruth is using would be pointing to like something really uh, bad is like, so the uncover, uh, uh, the word uncover very often throughout the Old Testament is to, to expose full nakedness and to be shameful in that. Uh, uh, to, 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 to uncover feet or legs. So sometimes it's not just feet and legs, but it, you know what I mean? Uh, I'll leave it there. Um, uh, to lie down is very often to, you know what? You know what I'm saying? And so not all the time, but a lot of the time, these words are used that way. So there's some ambiguity here. And so the thing is, so the effect here would be like you, you uh, picked up, you accidentally picked up your mom's uh, romance novel at the wrong place, and you're like, whoa, I didn't need to read that. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing is what's happening here. And so the question is, is what is Naomi up to? What is she telling Ruth to go do? What's up with this? And so if you're reading this in the Hebrew, and you're seeing this, and you're reading, you're like, I think I'm going to stop reading. Because this, and especially if you know like other Old Testament stories, when, when, when women and others would scheme, you know, and would try to come up with ways. And frankly, that is exactly how Moab started. It was one of these little scheming stories that just turned out really it's one of those you don't teach in Sunday school to kids kind of stories. And so you're reading this and you're thinking, where is this headed? It can't be good. Okay? Um, so one pastor likened it to this. Be like, okay, I don't have daughters and, and I wouldn't do this. If, and so if you're a dad and you have daughters, don't do this. But it would be like telling your daughter, okay, to, to, to maybe go down, go at night with a guy she likes, and he's going camping, and he's going to be drinking with his buddies, and after he falls asleep, slip into his tent, okay, uh, uncover his feet so that he wakes up, and, um, and when he wakes up, say to him, tell me what to do. Now what is most red-blooded a human male's gonna do right it ain't good right it is not great advice here you're thinking and that's where the, the author is really pointing us to you with this language now obviously that's not what happened but i think what beyond the innuendo here um there the author here's pointing this is a huge risky situation and the authors kind of get, get us to start thinking, oh, wow, th- this ain't good. This ain't headed in a good place. But beyond that, what's going on, I mean, this, the risk and the danger involved with this thing is, um, first of all, women didn't propose to men. At that time, uh, and this is before the, you know, Sadie Hawkins dances and all that stuff, you know what I mean? Uh, way before that, when uh, men were basically fathers 
or uncles would be the ones that would negotiate and uh, perpetuate uh, planned uh, organized, or arranged marriages. And so it did, this was, would not have been socially acceptable for a woman to, to, to propose to a man. All right. Uh, secondly, a, a younger woman wouldn't pursue a young, uh, an older man. Thirdly, a widow wouldn't have, you know, a poor, impoverished widow wouldn't have been proposing to a wealthy landowner. It was usually the other way around. Uh, if you, a man would marry a woman who has a, a sizable dowry, some inheritance, some land. That's a good woman. Can she cook too, right? Uh, that was how it worked, not the other way around. And so her, and her actions almost most certainly would have, and that's the language here and everything, would have seen as scandalous and would have cost, could have cost Boaz everything, his reputation and everything. And it could have even cost Ruth her life foreign Moabite putting a, a, a honorable Israelite landowner in this situation would not have gone over very well. Let's just put it that way. Okay? So this was an enormous risk that she was in, in here. Alright? And so, this is a side note. I think the sexual overtones that, and doesn't suggest that anything necessarily bad was intended or was going to happen. But it's the author really leading us to that place of like, what's going to happen? You know, it's like that moment. Like, I almost, when we were reading, I almost wanted to stop at that point where after Naomi gave this advice and just kind of leave it with you guys and say, what do y'all think is going to happen here? If you haven't read the story before, it's kind of like, ain't good. <laughs> ain't happening, ain't nothing good going on here. But here's the thing. Love, regardless of what happened in this story, I think categorically, love is always a risk. It is always risky to lay yourself out there and to love another human being. Um, I've used this quote before. I love it. And it's a C.S. Lewis quote from his book, The Four Loves. Listen to this quote. It's a little bit long, but stick with me, okay, with it. And we may, I might stop and kind of just explain a little bit. Okay, there is no safe investment to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglement. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that coffin, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perpetrations of love is hell. To love is to be vulnerable. It's to risk, isn't it? To, to lay yourself out there and to, um, and to, to expose yourself to potential loss. 
I'm, I'm reading a new book. It's actually a friend of C.S. Lewis. Who, uh, it's called A Severe Mercy. And it's about a man and a, 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 that uh, he fell in love with a, a young lady. And uh, they, they just had, they call it this impenetrable love is what they called it. And, um, and she eventually passed away. And he was reflecting upon a time as a, as a young man he was trying to, he was just, he had made a decision in his life to say, you know, I want to experience joy, but I know if I experience joy, I put myself at risk at, at, at experiencing true, deep sorrow. He said, I, I could avoid it. I could try to land in the middle and try to avoid either amazing joy and on the flip side with it, potential and actual in his case. Deep, deep sorrow, or just try to play it safe in the middle and never truly experience joy and never experience sorrow. And he said, I want them both. I'll take them both. And so, um, and that's what Ruth does here. But here's the thing Ruth's, Ruth's, this is hard to say, Ruth's risk is not entirely blind, is it? She's not just picking some random dude. That she's never met before, so she—it's not like she's—it's not like a blind leap of faith into some dude's arms that she's never met before. And this is why Naomi's like, "Be super careful to watch where he lands, because it's going to be really dark, and you really don't want to end up, you know, proposing to the wrong guy, because then this scenario could have been way different, right?" And so they had some some trust, some confidence that. Uh, Boaz would likely or hopefully would respond positively. And in fact, he did. And so, but they, they, they had some knowledge and background of this was that, you know, he had shown her favor. Not just, you know, kindness, but like some really lavish, generous favor. And he had really shown her like, that, man, there's, and, and it called, the, the book calls it chesed. It's like, it's, um, it's the covenantal love. It's faithful love is what he's shown. And so, um, so while a risk, they were ju- judging Boaz's character. And so, um, but still, at the heart of it, love is a risk. Okay? Secondly, love chooses over others. Love chooses over others. Let me explain this, okay? So genuine love is willing and, and sometimes must forsake others or other things for the sake of the one loved or the thing loved. Does that make sense? So, and, and we see this in marriage, don't we? Um, uh, marriage is an act of saying, I'm committing to you and, and I won't be with anybody else. So I, it's, a, it's an act of saying, I will choose you and over other people, right? Otherwise, it is not a good marriage. I mean, I, I guess there's people attempting to do different things today, but let me tell you, it never works. You know, swinging couples usually end up divorced. Uh, um, and so, and, and that, but when, when two people stand at the altar and they commit to each other, what they are saying is, I choose you and I, and I deny the rest, and that's where a be- the beauty of covenant marriage can be, is when two people say, I want you, and I want you alone. And so love, 
must choose over others. But that's true of a lot of things, too. If you love to do a sport, you're going to have to make choices in your life to make sacrifices in other parts of your life. That's just how, the, that's just how it works. In order to love something, you have to not love other things. I mean, maybe not love, but not love as much. Right? And that's, they talk about time management and, like, managing your life. They talk about that. They're like, it's a lot of great things. There's, like, good things to do in your life. You could have a full schedule of, of good things to do, but you can't do everything. And so they say the first, you want to start getting your schedule and your life in order, pick the things you love and are most important to you, and do those first. You get up in the morning, that's, you focus on what's most important. And otherwise, you're just going to be, you know, you're, and at the end of the day, you're not going to have done what was most important. Same with love. Um, and so, here's the thing. Boaz he sees her risk, and he sees, and he says this. He's, you chose me. And you could have gone after young men, rich or poor. Young men, old men, rich or poor. You know, we get the idea that the Moabite ladies were good looking, okay? You see this in other places in the Old Testament. So I said that last week. I was like, he saw her and he was like, who's that? Who's that girl? So she's good looking, you know? And and everybody knows she's, she's got some depth and some character to her as well. You know, it's usually either or, right? She's got a great personality or, you know, she's hot and, and it's just like, but she's hot, but it's this not, right? That's usually how it works kind of thing. And she's got, she's got both, man. She's, she's got, and so he knows she could have cho- chosen anybody. And yet he, she chose him. He says, you've shown me even more kindness than the first time. So she showed her character and love, the first time was to her, he mentioned in chapter 2, was to her, um, he showed a depth, she showed a depth of character and uh, faithfulness to, to Naomi, her mother-in-law. And now by choosing him, she shows yet another love and faithfulness. And he likes that. And he responds well to that. And that reminds me, like, so, you know, and part, the fact that, like, I've still blown away by the fact that like, Amanda chose to marry me, <laughs> you know, because like, I know me, and I, you know, and I, and, 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 and it's been a rough go, and I, I still wonder, like, and I still kind of ask her something, are you sure you want to keep doing, you know, like, you sure, like, you know what I'm saying, but I mean, but the, that's the beauty of it is, like, she has, and like, Boaz, like, I'm overwhelmed by that, like, that's awesome, that, it's, but the point is, love must choose over another, but it goes deeper than that. There's a deeper spiritual implication here. Because if you go back to the beginning of Ruth's story, she made a, had already made another choice. Is that, that faith, that kindness, that, that, that faithfulness, that chesed they call it in the Old Testament, is, um, it really plays out in chapter 1. When, when Naomi gives her a choice and says, go back, go back, it's going to be easier it's going to be, you know, in some ways better. You can find a, a husband. You know, your family will help you. And Orpha says, you're right. See ya. And Orpha does the most common. I mean, you look at You go back. You look at it. I mean, she made a good choice. Orpha made a good choice. But Ruth said, no. Your people will be my people. 
your God will be my God. So whatever that means, I choose that. Which meant Ruth had to forsake her people and had to forsake her God. And she chose that. And we we see that it must have been an amazing heart conversion. And so, the last thing I want to show here is that love is at, is at the heart of faith. So when we talk talking about love, and we talk about these principles like love risks, love chooses other over others, so it's, it's the same with our faith. This is at, this, this, all this is at the heart of our relationship with God. Okay, here let me put this. Faith is ultimately an expression of love and trust. In Ruth, we see an amazing picture of that love and trust. And that love and trust, okay, requires risk and sacrifice. It requires risk and loss. Did you hear what I said? So to, to have faith, to have a faith, it requires risk on the one hand and loss on the other hand or together. Okay, so risk, in other words, is trusting that God is good even if that's not totally clear. You, you follow what I'm saying? So like with, with uh, Ruth going and, and putting herself out there for, for Boaz, there were, it was unclear, it was uncertain whether or not that would turn out good. But using some knowledge that she had, looking back, she took the risk. But it's still a risk, isn't it? And the same with God. Are we able to trust God's goodness and His, and His delight for us? We, we talked about last week. Are we able to sit in that in order to take the risk to really fully trust Him and give our whole lives? And then this on the sacrifice side of things, okay, it's in order to trust and love God, to have genuine faith, we have to forsake what other good might otherwise come to us. We have to say, okay, I'm going to stop putting my trust and my hope in the things of this world, the, the promises of this world, which look pretty good and they feel pretty good. I'm going st- to stop hoping and trusting in that and I'm going to start trusting and hoping in God because I believe what he's told me, which is he seeks my ultimate joy, not just my temporary happiness. And that's the same dynamic going on in our relationships. If you turn to Hebrews chapter um, 11, we see this play out in the Old Testament as well in other places. The, the author of Hebrews gives us um, a, a really kind of a playlist of people doing this. So, is it, on, is it, did I have it on the screen? No, okay. Well, let me just read it to you. If you can't, if you have a Bible, I'm going to be in Hebrews chapter 11. I'm starting verse 8, 8 through 16. It says this, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called um, to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he, here it is, why? He was looking forward 
to a city that had foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So by faith, Sarah and herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many of the stars. All right, and if you jump down to verse 24, he gives other examples. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, which would have been a really good thing. Rich, beyond measure, and powerful. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So, Abraham, and Sarah, and Moses, and, and the author of Hebrews lists tons more. All of them were saying, you know what? My, the land of Ur is pretty, we're comfortable here. He's talking about Abraham and the land of Ur where he lived. And things were comfortable, like life was good, and God said, go. And he said, we didn't even know where, where he was going, what that meant. But he was looking for something, for a, a greater city. One had deep, eternal foundations. And same with Moses. Re, re, rejecting and turning away from the, the riches, the glories of being uh, the son of the Egyptian pharaohs. Would have been a life of pleasure and ease and power. It sounds good, but he, re- he leaves it and rejects it, looking for a greater reward. And so, here's, here's an idea. We are called by God to risk missing out on the world's joys for ultimate joy in Him. And it is a risk. You are, it is... Stepping out and exposing yourself to risk, which is what is risk is to put yourself in a place of vulnerability for loss, suffering, and maybe even death. That's risk is to put yourself in a place of potential harm. And so to, to trust and to, to put yourself in trust and love in a relationship with God is to risk losing this world. That's why the Apostle Paul and talking about the resurrection, says if the resurrection is not true, in other words, this ain't happening, Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he's not coming back, all of this promises aren't going to happen, we, he says this, we are by all, by all means meant to be pitied above everybody else. In other words, if it's not true, we've wasted the only life we have. So it's a risk. But here's the thing. We're, we don't have to step into it blindly, do we? We have testimony. We have witness. We, we have the testimony and, and we have the word of God testifying that Jesus actually did walk in, on this earth. He actually lived that perfect, selfless, sinless life. And that he actually did die on a cross on our behalf. And yes, indeed, he did raise from the dead and is waiting for the day that when he will redeem the rest of us. And we know that's true. And we know that in that gospel, that we, the, the truth that God genuinely actually delights in us. 
Because if we believe and trust in his son, Jesus, he calls us to be his sons and daughters in whom he delights in giving ultimate joy. That's the good news. Is that beyond all this world, the goods that it offers and the terror that it offers, there is ultimate joy waiting. However, are we just trying to play it safe? Because I believe, if you genuinely believe that God is, is God, and He genuinely delights in us, you're like a kid playing in Dad's backyard. That's life. Right? My kids are in the backyard, and they know they're safe, and they're in the fence, and, they're, you know, and this, they know it's mine, and they know I delight in it. They just play. They go somewhere unsafe and uncharted, they can't play. They have to play it safe. I believe a lot of Christians play it safe. They're missing out on joy because they're scared of the sorrow that might come with it. There's a pastor, a preacher, conference guy named Francis Chan. He gave this pretty cool sermon one time. And on the stage was a balance beam, like an Olympic balance beam, you know? And he's like, he's talking about like, you know, if you compete in the Olympics, you're taking a risk, aren't you? You know, think about it. I mean, these little girls and little boys that do Olympics and stuff, you know, I mean, nowadays on the world stage in the Olympics are like kids. And for them to get up and get on these balance beams or on these rings or out of these floors and do these vaults and all this stuff... They're taking a risk and putting themselves out there for failure, for potential disaster and failure, right? And so he gives a picture, and he gets up on the balance beam, and instead of being free to say, oh, I'm going to go for it, I'm going to enjoy this, and I'm going to do what I've been trained to do, whatever, he's like, most Christians get up, and they're like, ready? They get up on the balance beam, and they like, get down, and they hug it, you know, and they're hang, hanging on, they're like, okay, and they're like, you know, like coming across it, you know, just inching across, okay, because I, I don't want to fall, I don't want to mess up, you know, and then, okay, get down really carefully, it just doesn't work, does it? No, it, it's, it's putting ourselves out there in risk. Forsaking the joys and risking losing some things so that we can have the ultimate joy. Because in, in the same chapter in Corinthians 15, Jesus, the Apostle Paul says, you know, our, our labor is not in vain. Jesus indeed raised from the dead. And we are looking forward to an ultimate joy. And so, you know, if you're, if you're not a believer this morning, you haven't received by faith. Let me just tell you, um, there are, there's a joy beyond the greatest joys of this life offered to us. Jesus said, I have come to seek your complete, full, ultimate joy. And I have a joy that's going to last. It's going to last beyond this life. Because there's some great things in this life. You know, there's amazing chili. There's great parties. There's, you know, great things that can, you can have in this life. I'm not, let's not kid ourselves, right? The, a world offers great things, but it doesn't last. Even 
you have it all, and you live the, the most comfortable, peaceful, wealthy, perfect life, and you die at the end of it, whether you believe in an afterlife or not, what was it for? And so the point of it is that Jesus offers is saying, hey, there's something better than this. So for us believers, here's the thing. Resting in his delight for us, resting in the hope that he's given us, we are now free to risk, to free to live, to step out and, and to, to do, take the challenges and do the things that he has called us to do. And I feel like so many of us Christians are playing it safe and comfortable. And we're just, right, just keep our heads low so nobody, you don't get hit by the bullets flying or whatever. And in that, we're missing out on the joys that God has for us in serving Him and doing things for Him in this life because we're afraid of the sorrow it might bring. And, we, and, or, and even in our, our relationships with other people, we just like, I'll just keep it to me and my wife and my family. And I, I'm not going to invite other people in because other people are messy and it's hard. But there's joy in that. There's joy in serving God and putting ourselves out there for other people. And so we see here in this book like a really cool picture of love and faith and trust, don't we? What that looks like here in, in, in Ruth and Naomi. And just like in the gospel, it, it seems like it's going to pay off. But you're going to have to wait to next week to see what happens because there's another redeemer. We'll explain this later, but there's somebody else who has rights to this property in Naomi and in, in Ruth. And so we're going to find out next week. So you don't want to miss the end, find out what actually happens and what that really means in the scheme of history. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you for this beautiful picture.